It is great to be here with all of you today. We're so thankful for the presence of all that have made an effort to be with us, to worship God together in spirit and in truth. We have several of our number, actually quite a few members of our congregation that are other places today, either up north at the Memorial Day meeting or some are out because they're ill, perhaps others traveling other places. So I decided to deviate from the series that I've started with you, and that is on the I am statements, the seven I am statements that Jesus made as recorded in the Gospel of John. We've already talked about Jesus saying, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, and I am the door. Next time, Lord willing, we're going to talk on the subject of when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. So we'll deal with that next time. What I wanted to do today, though, is I want to talk on some passages that are found in the very last sermon that Jesus ever preached, and it's found in Matthew chapter 23. And beginning there in verse 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Just a little bit of background here. Jesus, on the day of questioning or the day of questions, perhaps scholars tell us it could have very well been on Tuesday in the last week in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees. He's questioned by the Herodians. He's questioned by the scribes. And the reason that they come to Jesus to try to discredit him is because if they can discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people, then the people would be supportive of Jesus being crucified. And that's all they wanted to do. But Jesus answers every one of their questions. And now it's time for the Lord to preach. And he preaches this sermon so long ago. He begins by saying, calling them scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Notice the first thing he says. This is what he's going to bring out. He said, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Now, what are those things? You know, the word for mint, actually in the original, it's translated from a Greek word that means sweet smelling. So we all know what mint smells like. These were kitchen spices. They were things that were added to their food and so forth. And what he says is, you give tithe to mint. Anise, by the way, is dill. It's a flavoring agent. And cumin is also a flavoring agent too. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what he was saying is, he was saying that these scribes and Pharisees and all of that, they were paying tithe to them. And what they would do is this. We're going to get to tithing in just a moment, though, because God commanded a tithe under the Old Testament. What they would do is they took the command to tithe and they extended it to the idea of even the kitchen spices. They would count out nine for me and one for God. Nine for me and one for God. And then cumin, nine for me and one for God. Now, it's important that I make this point, I think. It's really not the point whether they were giving a tithe of these kitchen spices or not. What was Jesus was addressing was their motive behind it. That was the point. Let me notice with you two Old Testament passages. In Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30, 
It says, and all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, the Lord is the Lord's. Another passage, too, that's found is found in Deuteronomy 14 and 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. All right. God commanded that they would give a tithe of the increase that was produced in the field. Now, let me ask you this. If God did not mean, and that's not the point, but if he didn't mean about the kitchen spices, is it wrong for man to tithe or give from the kitchen spices? Absolutely not. It is never wrong. It is never wrong to give to God. They would sort it out, though, and they would be very, uh, well, they would be very, uh, Attentive to those, even those kitchen spices. One scholar said it this way These men magnify the insignificant and they minimized the essential. All right. On the outside, their expression seems honorable. They gave a tenth of what could be counted. And I got to thinking about this this morning. You know, I quote my father a lot. Some of you knew my father. My father used to always say, What would you do? If you didn't get credit, what would you do if no one was there to give you the credit? It's kind of like this. He would tell me about working out and stuff. He said, if you work out in the eyes of your coaches just because they're watching, what good is that? It's really not who you are. And then he said, the greatest things you will ever do are behind the scenes when you don't get credit. A Texas billionaire once said in the testimony of his life, and what drove him in his life. He said, my father was a salesman. He was the greatest salesman in all the world to him. And he said, you know what my father taught me? And I've tried to live by that principle. This Texas billionaire said, my father said, if you're willing to give somebody else the credit, you can conquer the world. If you just don't have to have the credit. These fastidious Pharisees, they wanted the credit. All the things that can be seen. How do I know that? That's exactly what Jesus meant when he talked about the Pharisees. It says they like to be seen in the synagogue. They like long prayers that they're seen of men. And Jesus said they have their reward. In other words, whatever pat on the back that they get from the world, looking at them and viewing them and giving them credit is all they're going to get. They're getting nothing from the Father. The idea is the motive behind it. Notice what he says here. You're careful to give tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, but what did you do wrong? You've neglected the weightier matters of the law. And those weightier matters are justice, mercy, and faith. You know the term weightier is a rabbinical term, and it was passed down by rabbinic tradition. And what the Jews would do is they, based on rabbinic tradition, they would consider certain aspects of the law more weightier than other matters of the law. And what's interesting is Jesus is going to tell them what the weightier matters really are. He uses their phrase, he uses their rabbinic term, and then he makes his point. The Jews, for example, believed that certain aspects of the old law were more weightier than the others. Like, for example, circumcision. 
And by the way, that's why when the Judaizing teachers entered into the church after the church was established, they wanted to buy aspect, uh, bind aspects of the old law on them what based upon their weightier matters, like circumcision. Here's another one. Remember what they hated Jesus for? How he handled the Sabbath. You know why? Rabbinic tradition taught that keeping the Sabbath was a weightier matter. What Jesus is saying is this. You're careful to give tithes of these kitchen spices, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And Jesus says what they are. They're justice, mercy, and faith. You know, this is really powerful because Jesus doesn't just grab this out of nowhere. And they would have understood this too. It's a parallel. What Jesus says here about justice, mercy, and faith is a parallel to what's found in the book of Micah in the Old Testament. Notice this. Micah 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. You know, they were guilty of being against all of that. They were unjust. They were unmerciful. They were unkind. They were unforgiving. They were unholy. They did not walk humbly with their God. They walked by the works of the law, by their own efforts. They walked by sight and had no faith. They neglected truly the weightier matters of the law. Now, it's important that we remember this too. Sometimes, please get this, Sometimes people say in interpreting this passage is Jesus doesn't care at all about the details. He only cares about justice, mercy, and faith, and that's not what the Lord said. Let's notice what the Lord actually did say. These, justice, mercy, and faith, you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, keep the commandments, keep the details. Do they matter? Yes, they matter. At the same time, keep justice, mercy, and faith, the weightier matters. In other words, don't be without any of them. You know, I got to say, sometimes people, sometimes people can go through their life thinking that they've figured out what it means to look like the kind of person that they should be by checking the boxes off and going down the list and, okay, I'm doing that, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. And yet they're awful to other people, unkind to other people. It matters, folks. We need to understand that look, being a member of the church is also being a Christian. They ought to go hand in hand, absolutely. We need to spend time on what it means to be a Christian and to be a member of the church. It should be the exact same thing. How we treat one another. It's not just a list. It's how God wants us to be as a Christian in our life. In the church should be the very same thing. Sometimes people look at these passages and say, you see, we don't have to obey anything. We just have to have those other matters. And that's not what Jesus said. All right. So they should have kept the weightier matters. They should have given attention to the proper tithe and all of that. And now Jesus is going to give examples of what they're like. Blind guides who strain out a net and swallow the camel. 
You know the word strain? It comes from a word that means to filter. Now, the old King James says it like this. It says, who strain at a gnat. But the new King James really, I think, is a better translation of it. Blind guides who strain out a gnat. Because that's exactly what they did. Uh, a gnat, by the way, was the smallest of all unclean things. And what they would do is, for example, they would, would make sure that they didn't eat the gnat. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 42 says, Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, and whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. Another passage. Leviticus 11 and verse 4. Nevertheless, you shall not eat among those that chew the cud, nor those who have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. This is what they would actually do, by the way. Jesus is telling them, you know what you're doing? You see the gnat. You're avoiding the gnat. But you're swallowing the camel. You're avoiding the smallest of unclean things, but you're swallowing the biggest. You're missing the point by neglecting the weightier matters. Now, actually, I read some stuff that was actually found in the Talmud and some other things that historians and scholars have written about what they would actually do. And that's what they would have understood when Jesus says, you strain out the gnat. What they would do is this. When they would make wine or they would make a beverage, what they would do is they'd be very careful to keep it pure and keep it clean. In fact, what they would do is they would take a strainer cloth. Just perhaps a gnat flew in there. They didn't know it, and all of a sudden it's in there. They didn't want to be guilty of eating one of those gnats. So they would take a strainer cloth, and they would place it over the top. They would pour the beverage through the strainer cloth. And if there was a gnat that was in there, the gnat wouldn't get into the drinking vessel and they could partake of it. They could drink it and not be guilty of having something that was unclean. That was straining out a gnat. One scholar said this, though. I thought this was rather interesting. He said, some fastidious Pharisees drank their wine through clenched teeth in order to filter out any impurities and then pick the gnat out of their teeth. Now, I, I've tried to picture what that would have looked like, some guy with his teeth clenched like this, drinking his beverage, making sure he didn't eat the gnat. Okay, you don't want to eat the gnat, right? And then he gets some teeth, I flick it out of the teeth later. Okay, that's what Jesus was referring to. That's how fastidious, from the standpoint of every detail, they were. But they missed the whole point. In other words, you're afraid to eat the tenth meat mint leaf, but you're allowing in your life hypocrisy, dishonesty, cruelty, and greed. That's what he says that when you neglect the weight of your matters of the law, you know what you're doing? You're straining out the gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. Number two, the second example describing them. It's found in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Interesting. The word dish in the Greek is a very interesting word. It's not just any ordinary dish. It actually is translated as fancy dish. 
And just a little bit of background about that. If there was some kind of a function or some kind of a party or some engagement and so forth, and people came together, if they were all there eating and so forth, when they would bring out this particular dish, everybody knew that when you brought the fancy dish out that contained therein were the delicacies, the special stuff. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying on the outside, you're appearing to be one way. You're appearing to be something that you're not. And by the way, I know that the word hypocrite is the most overused word in the English language when people refer to people that are religious. It is. It's overused. It's abused and all of that. But a hypocrite is what he's talking about now. Scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? They're pretending to be something that they're really not. On the outside, they're looking like this fancy dish is going to bring the delicacies, but on the inside, no, it's filthy. You're spending all of your time washing the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside is full of extortion and excess. One scholar said it like this, you have a ministry that looks pious on the outside, but the whole thing is based on taking advantage of other people. You use people, you make merchandise out of people. And you know, the real source of impurity was their heart. I know we spend a lot of time about the heart. You know why? Because the heart, one way or the other, is exactly the reason and the source of our behavior. That's the reason. Sometimes you can correct a symptom, but it doesn't go away because you haven't corrected the problem. You know, it's kind of like this. If you have pain, I'll just use myself years ago. I, I had a headache for 10 years. I had concussion problems and so forth, and I went to all kinds of doctors. And you know what they did? They gave me these medicines to help the pain. It didn't go away. It came right back. You know why? It didn't fix the problem. Then a doctor put me on some medication that I take as a preventative manner, a preventative measure. Guess what? No more headaches. Fix the problem. Fix the source and not just the symptom. So when we talk about people not putting the Lord first in their life, that is a symptom. That's a symptom. We talk about, and I'm not going to get on this subject, but we talk about attendance. Things don't get better because it's only a symptom. It's a symptom of a greater problem, and that's the heart. What Jesus was saying is, you're real great about polishing the outside. The problem is your rotten heart. The problem is your heart on the inside. If you fix the inside... The outside will be fixed also. And you know, I think this is really true. You know, God looks at the heart. God cares about the heart. He really does. Jesus would say that too when he walked on the face of this earth in his personal ministry. He said, you heard that it had been said. And he would quote something from the old law. But then Jesus would say, but I say unto you. The motive means everything. The heart is the source. I'm going to say something pretty sobering to you. But I will tell you this. We could be here today. And we could be going through the motions of worship. We can make sure that every time those doors are open, we are right here. We are worshiping God, right? We're here. Got it. Checking me off. It's possible to go through the motions, but your heart is far from God. God knows the heart and God cares about the heart. 
And if your heart is out there somewhere, it's only a matter of time before you will follow it. I think people do exactly what they want to do. I really do. And many times they do what they want to do and then figure out ways after the fact to justify their decisions. But you will go where your heart goes. And you know what? I didn't say that. Jesus did. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. God cares about the heart. Look at an Old Testament passage now as found in 1 Samuel 16 and 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at this appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All right. Then he says this. By the way, he, he begins with scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites over and over again. I, I got to tell you, this might be a very unpopular sermon today. I'm so glad the Lord preached it. He does it again in verse 26. Blind Pharisees, hypocrites. Then he says what you should do. Instead of doing what you've been doing, and that is washing the outside, not caring about the inside, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. I don't mean to oversimplify, and I hope I'm not insulting your intelligence, but we've all done dishes. We've all washed dishes. You can hold a cup out of the water, and you can take a sponge and, and clean the outside, and it looks real good. It could be filthy inside. It really can what Jesus says is, that's what you're doing. What you should do is wash the inside. And notice, when you wash the inside, the outside takes care of itself. You take the same cup, you submerge it in a sink full of soapy water, you clean the inside. Aren't you also cleaning the outside that is submerged in that soapy water? The idea is fix the inside. The outside will take care of itself. Then, here's another description, another description of them in verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully, beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. You're guilty of deception and you contaminate people. This is actually a stinging accusation, folks. It's one of the most picturesque that Jesus gives. You know what he says about them? He says to them, you're like whitewashed tombs. What is that? Just a little background about that. First of all, the idea is you are, you are contaminating other people spiritually. What are these whited sepulchers or whitewashed tombs? What they would do is they would take at the time or after the time of the rains. And what they would do is when the rainy season was over, they would take lime powder, they would mix it with water, and they would whitewash the tombs. And there was a reason for that. And by the way, I remember when I came into the painting trade 31 years ago, I remember that whitewash cabinets were the big fad of the day. And that was such a fad, it was red oak cabinets with white platinum stain, and we called that whitewash. And it actually would look kind of pink. And then you'd lacquer it, and then lacquer with yellow, and you could just imagine what they looked like in 10 years. But that was a fad, and that's what people wanted. Whitewash here was different. They took lime powder, they mixed it with water, and it was kind of like paint. 
And they would actually do this. In fact, the Mishnah said on the 15th of Adar, which is the month of March in Israel at that time, they would whitewash these tombs. And they did it for a number of reasons. They would whitewash those caves and limestone tombs where the more prominent people were buried. And they did that in preparation of the Passover. People would be coming during the time of the Passover. They'd be coming into Jerusalem. And one historian said, you could look up to the hillside in Jerusalem and you could see whited sepulchers or whitewashed tombs dotting the landscape of all of that. Do you know why? Two reasons. One, it looked great on the outside. And two, so that somebody coming into Jerusalem during the time of the Passover would not inadvertently touch one of those graves and become unclean at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem. That's why they did that. They would take that lime powder and they would put it on those tombs. What else would they do? I read that they actually took and they would sometimes just cover the, the whole tomb. And other times... They would draw pictures of bones, telling people, don't touch, and this is why. In Numbers 19 and 16, whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword, or who has died, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean seven days. That was the reason. Now, that's just history. But can you imagine being called that? Can you imagine the Lord calling you a whitewashed tomb? On the outside, you appear beautiful, clean, but on the inside, you're not. Inside, you are nothing but <clears throat> dead man's bones, full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. The graves appear beautiful on the outside. And I think, too, the idea is he's telling them in application here. He's telling them in application that you're contaminating people because they see you as one thing on the outside, but you're not. And I got to tell you, it's kind of like a false teacher. It really is. Have you ever stopped to consider the collateral damage when somebody teaches error? I got to clarify something to you. I'm not talking about somebody that just misunderstands a passage and teaches it, and maybe they just missed the passage or they didn't understand it thoroughly or fully. When I talk about a false teacher, I'm talking about this. I'm talking about somebody that rejects what the truth of the Bible says and accepts an erroneous position that's, that's inaccurate and teaches the erroneous position which is inaccurate and does that to draw a party unto themselves. That's called a false teacher. The Bible in the New Testament calls that a heretic. Somebody that is not genuine, somebody that's a false teacher, is just like this, contaminating those that they come across. And what that's doing is this. It's leading them with collateral damage away from the truth. When somebody decides to do that, it always has damage. Jesus says, though, that inside you are full of dead men's bones. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 28, the application here. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, 
but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, then there's one more. So, so far, Jesus says you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. That's what he said. And he describes them so far three ways. Number one, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow the camel. Number two, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside it's filthy. And number three, you're like whitewashed tombs on the outside, but inside you're just what you are, and that is dead man's bones. But there was something else they were guilty of, and that was pretension. Pretending to be so much better than everybody else. Have you ever stopped to consider how much God hates pride? You know, the Bible talks about pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. That's what the Bible says. When Satan and the third of the host of heaven were cast out of heaven, so long ago, it was because of sinful pride. Thinking yourself to be better than somebody else. And Jesus is going to deal with this very thing. God always hates pride. This is what he says in Matthew 23, verses 29 and 30. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. Hold it right there. This was the practice of rebuilding tombs in remembrance of past heroes. They actually did that. One of the ones that had died and passed here, they would rebuild the tomb. They'd make a monument to them. Jesus deals with that very thing. He says, you do this, by the way. You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. That's not the problem yet. Very common for them to do that. In fact, Robertson said this. The tombs in the Kidron Valley that are now named in honor of Zechariah, Absalom, and Jehoshaphat were all built at the time that Jesus said this. Jesus was referring to the practice that they did. But remember, I said they had pride. They thought they were better than the others. And this is what they said. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. You see the hypocrisy? Let's build the monument for those heroes of days gone by, those prophets of old. And then, if we were there, we wouldn't have done what they did. Oh, we're much better than that. We're much holier than that. We wouldn't have done that. That's not what we would have done. We wouldn't have killed the prophets as our fathers had done. We wouldn't have even thought of doing something like that. We're holier than that. We're better than that. This is the ugly pretense of spiritual pride. Build monuments to honor men in the past and then claim to be better. And now the Lord is going to fire a shot as we wrap up our thoughts. He's going to fire a shot. And I'm going to tell you something. The Lord didn't fire shots over the bow. This is a direct hit. You want to talk about being direct? Sometimes people don't want to be direct. Or sometimes people resent when somebody's direct. Let me get real direct here. This is what Jesus said. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. What's he saying is, he's not beating around the bush. What he's saying is, like father, like son. You've just said, hey, look at these great prophets, but we wouldn't have done what they've done. No, like father, like son, you're the same way. Why is that? They're about to murder the greatest prophet the world ever knew. That was Jesus Christ. 
He's telling them, not only are you like them that killed the prophets, but you're worse. You're absolutely worse. Like father, like son. Here's another direct hit. Here's a command. And if you're not careful, you can fly right, right past this. Jesus, the, the word of God here is in the tense of a command. He says, fill up. The word fill up means do it. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. In other words, that's what you came to do. Jesus is commanding them to get on with it, to push his crucifixion. Don't you see that Jesus was not the victim? Jesus was in control. Jesus commands them to go ahead and do it. You know why? Because Jesus knew it was God's will that he would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And it would be on a Roman cross. He would have to be lifted up. Old Testament prophecies pointing toward that very event. It had to happen. When Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was praying to his father. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You've heard me say this before. The cup there is more than just the cup of suffering. I think what was worse was the very fact that the sins of the world would be placed on a perfect Jesus. He would have to do it by himself, and God's face would be turned away. He would be by himself. And that was the only time our Lord was ever alone on Golgotha's brow on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. He despised the shame. He did all of that, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. These were horrible things that he would have to endure. That was God's will. And I want you to know something. If you're here today, take that personally. Jesus died for your sins. Personally. And for mine, personally. Jesus is telling them, get it over with. Get on with it. Jesus also said, my life no one takes. No man takes my life. He said, my life I freely give. That's why on the cross when Jesus was about to die, he said, it's finished. I've done it. It's accomplished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And that is that. He said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus gave his life. But he knew they had to do their part. So he says, in a command, just do it. Our Lord was totally in control. Okay. In closing, what do we learn? What do we learn from this? In application. Number one, God always looks at the heart. Sometimes we look at the outside. That's all we look at is the appearance. But God always looks at the heart. Number two, if we fix the inside, we automatically fix the outside. Let's fix the source and not the symptom. Symptom takes care of itself. Number three, don't appear beautiful on the outside, but inwardly be rotten like dead men's bones. Be authentic. Be an authentic Christian. Be the same on the inside as you are on the outside. And number four, oh yes, let's keep all the commands of God. The details do matter. Keep all the commands of God, but don't neglect the weightier matters, which are justice, mercy, and faith. Keep it all. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, 
please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.